Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome back to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is The Stacks Book Club, where we break down one book in detail with a guest. The book this week is Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. And yes, there are some minor spoilers. Our guest is none other than Dave Cullen, author of Columbine and Parkland. You can hear Dave on last week's episode, which I recommend if you haven't heard it yet. Also, as a reminder, everything we talk about on today's show can be found in the show notes. Click that link to take you to all the books and movies and more that we discussed today. You can find links to our social media accounts and more in the show notes. If you love the show and want to help support the work we do, please consider joining us on Patreon. Patreon is a website that allows listeners like you to help creators like me keep creating content. The best part is you also earn perks like our virtual book club, voting on decisions that happen around the stacks, and a lot more. So to join the Stacks Pack, head over to patreon.com slash the stacks. I also want to shout out Karen Salgado, who's an outstanding, loyal member of the Stacks Pack. It's through Patreon that I've been able to connect with wonderful listeners like Karen. So thank you for your support of the show and just generally for being awesome. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and that you leave us a rating and a review. I know I ask this every week and I promise I wouldn't ask if it wasn't important to helping spread the word about the show. So if you haven't done so yet, please take a moment to leave a review. And trust me, I read every single review and I'm so, so grateful for all of you. So thank you. Okay, now it's time for you all to hear Dave Collin and I discuss Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. And we also talk about a whole lot more. All right, everybody, we are back again with author Dave Cullen. Um, We're just going to dive in. So today we're talking about Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. It's a collection of short stories. It's a backlist title. It came out in 1993, and it follows a guy and his experiences as a drug addict and kind of with his crowd of friends companions, people he encounters. Um, It's a little dark, a little twisty, my kind of thing. Um, So we'll just dive in. I always start with this question. What did you think of the book? And you've read it. You've read it multiple times. It's one of your favorites. I suggested it. You suggested it. Um, I adore this book and more so with every passing year, really. Mm. And um, the New York Times did a list of like 25 great books of the last 25 years or something. Mm. Um, And it was on it. It was five or ten years ago. But um, 
I think its stature has grown over time. Interesting. I think I, I don't think it would. I don't think it quite had that reaction when it came out. And um, it, he won the National Book Award later. Okay. The Tree of Smoke, Tree of Smoke, which I didn't finish. I couldn't get through. Which hmm. I don't think is nearly this is. But you know what? Yeah, this is his classic. I, I was thinking, like, well, maybe I just think that. But no, I, here. So the last book he did before he just died about mm. a year ago, and the last book, which is quite extraordinary, uh, The Largesse of the Sea Maiden, which mm. I thought I hated the title mm-hmm. until you read it and you get where that line comes from, is um, is just just something else. But um, but anyway, a lot of the reviews I read basically said that uh, his classic is uh, – Jesus is on. In fact, I think a few of them even mentioned he won the the, the you know National Book Award for Tree of Smoke. But the one that people love him will really mention is um, is is Jesus is son. And I and, and for me too. Um, when I read it, I thought it was a book I loved. Hmm. And uh, maybe it is something about the subject matter. Like I I didn't think of it as a classic, and I didn't think. When I first read it, I don't think I thought of it as one of my 10 favorites ever, which it definitely is now. Okay. Um, and I don't have a set list exactly, so there's probably more than 10. Sure. <laughs> yes. my, my 15 books crammed on my top 10 list, but I don't freaking care. You know, right. like, it's your um, list. It's, yeah, it's my list of favorites. Um, but I don't think it was. But the, um, for, for one thing, I go back to it constantly and literally go back and read it passages mm. and remember and try to get what he was doing um, – I've been learning from him from this for the last 20 years or so mm. and uh, and admiring and more and more as I read other things that are wonderful and beautiful. And, and I keep thinking like, wow, this is like almost as good as Jesus' son. I can't tell mm. many books I've like thought like, wow, in a way this is like Jesus' son is like, but like never anywhere. Like the longer it's gone, because you know how like I think most of us with books, movies, with everything – some really stick with us, and right. some like you forget an hour right, and a half right. later. Um, and sometimes we're sort of surprised. I think this is one that surprised me a little. Huh. Um, and it's really um, he does so many things with it that are just so amazing. And I don't know if you know either, like because uh, uh, I yeah I oh, we could tell them I sprung this on you late too because yes. like I continued like uh, you kept reminding me we had to pick up a book and I'm like okay I'll get to that I'll get to it. And about a week ago, I'm like <laughs> oh my god I that's we're doing that in a week I'm going to L A. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, because it was the because we're taping like a week yes. after the 20th anniversary of Columbine, and I did so much media about that, and, right. and podcasts and stuff. And it was April 20th. I could not think through past that day, right? Of course. Until the next day, basically, it was a Sunday. I'm like, oh, okay, now what's on my schedule? Like, oh, I'm going to LA on Friday. <laughs> oh my God, that's why she's been saying she needs a book. It's like, like she has to read something <laughs> by then. I'm like, oh my God. And I, so I didn't mean to be like screwing you. No, it's but I was fine. Like, just you know, you're doing. You've dealt with writers before. Like, yeah, a, a week isn't so bad for me to read a book, to be honest. So here's the thing that I found interesting about this. I am not. I am a reader, and I am not a writer. Like, I don't oh, yeah. write, and I don't particularly like to write when I mm-hmm. have to. And I say that I'm not a writer, but I do review everything that I read, so I do write a little bit, but sure. I don't like it. Um, and so I, I'm very curious about this book. So a friend of mine mentioned that this is, like, one of those books that if you're a writer, you have to read it's it. It's a writer's book, totally. And so I don't know that I connected with it completely mm. because I don't know that I appreciate writing as much as I appreciate story. And so while I liked that it was the same narrator throughout, I really liked that. I felt like I was missing a lot because I was like, mm, 
it's an interesting story. Like, mm-hmm. but I didn't, I don't know that I understood what I was supposed to be looking for. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. And I totally, and I get that from people all the time who like love to read a lot and they're like, Oh, I don't feel worthy. It's like, well, what do you like? Like, you know what? Um, but I, I think writers get some of the stuff sort of like the magic behind the curtain. Right. But I think if I had to pick one single thing, well, voice is up there, but like, I would say insight. Hmm. And I mean, and you know, and I was saying in the previous episode about Jonathan Latham, mm-hmm. and I mean insight about everything, even describing a scene, the the connections he makes to other things and the way, but he weaves into it just insights about the world. Let me jump to something like, can I like read a paragraph? Yes, go ahead. Right here, like uh, it's one of my, okay, I got two in the book that I just think are so fantastic. And this is, it's from Beverly Home, the last book. And by the way, you know, you said this guy. Like, so there's also this debate of whether it's the same guy. But like, I also accept that it it's is because he has it's the so same many, name in yeah. two of the two or three of the stories, fuckhead or whatever they yeah, call. Yeah, it. well, Fuck yeah, up. yes, Fuck exactly. Boy. So he's never actually named, but right. yeah, just but fuckhead. he has like the same the same guy. Yeah, right. Pretty much. But there's a debate. Oh, there I, is a I debate. agree with you. I agree with oh, you. Interesting. Some people are like, oh, it's like it's different points in his life, and sometimes an ex alcoholic, sometimes it was a drug addict. Oh, I just like, thought he did so both things. Wild. Yeah, exactly. I right. figured like if you're doing heroin, you're probably drinking. I don't know. Exactly. That or might have like been different my assumption. Versions of the same yeah. Guy. So they made a movie of him where oh. they put it all together. Billy Crudup plays him. Uh, of course. I, I, it was perfect for him. But like all sorts of great, you know, sort of like right. art house people are in it. It's not a fantastic. It's like a B plus A minus movie. It seems like it would be like kind of like a cult favorite type thing. It is. I was going to cast Adam Driver in this. Oh, I could see. Okay, I could totally see. Right? Isn't he like? But they're like the same kind of guy. Yeah, Yeah, they're like the same guy. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) they kind of are. Billy. Yeah, Adam Driver is the young Billy Crudup. Um, Yeah, and they listed him as fuckhead in the credits. Right. um, Okay, so so here's the passage in Beverly Home, which is Beverly Home is a is a halfway house. Where this guy is now like working, he's an ex-alcoholic and he's working, but seeing these different people. There was a guy there with something like multiple sclerosis. A perpetual spasm forced him to perch sideways on his wheelchair and peer down along his nose at his knotted fingers. This condition had descended on him suddenly. He got no visitors. His wife was divorcing him. He was only three, I believe he said, but it was hard to guess what he told about himself because he really couldn't talk anymore. Beyond chomping his lips repeatedly around his protruding tongue while groaning. No more pretending for him. He was completely and openly a mess. Meanwhile, the rest of us go on trying to fool each other. Hmm. Now, that's one of my favorite passages ever written. Mm. But, and I, you know, I, and it illustrates several things. One of them is that, um, and you know, I say insight about human beings and, and how we treat each other. Mm-hmm. And, and about this guy and what life would be like for him. And the... All the ways, like, if you were to, like, get multiple sclerosis and mm-hmm. you would descend on you, like, your friends might drift away, your wife divorcing you, probably just because they couldn't freaking deal. Right. Like, and, like, and I love the things, like, um, even, like, giving his age, which normally you would just give a character's age, but, like, I believe he said, but I couldn't really understand it. Right. That's that right. right. And I was like, oh. But then I also love, not that I'm usually up for, like, those sort of, like, I don't want to say the cheap unearned or like the moment of like wisdom, but like, uh, I love that, you know, no more pretending for him anymore. Right. That's one of my favorite just sort of moments of, um, well, and and another thing right after, which is like, um, I mean, what I'm saying it out of thing, it almost sounds like a Hallmark card kind of reverse (laughs) Hallmark card, maybe, um, you know, meanwhile, the rest of us go on trying to fool each other. Um, 
I just think that's one of like the, I mean, that's right up there to me with Shakespeare with all the world's a stage. Mm. That, you know, we're all performing that like life's a comedy and stuff. Is like right. that, um, that like we're all damaged people and we're all performing and we're like, we're mm. all, we're all big freaking messes. Right. On the right. inside. And like this guy, so we came up with a character was the embodiment of how all of us kind of feel about ourselves. And I, I mentioned imposter syndrome the last week too. So maybe it's just me, but I think all of us, yeah. we like not quite this literal, right. but like a version of this big mess inside. And he just like, so Dennis just gives you that actual guy mm-hmm. and then, um, and then makes the connection that's like, he's completely and utterly a mess. And the rest of us just go on, you know, uh, trying to fool each other. I'm like, that, that's life. Hmm. That's my life. That's everybody's life of like being that guy, but like this facade fooling everybody. Um, and I just like, and that's just like, you know, dropped in there and right. it just keeps going. There's not one more goddamn thing about this guy. I, I think that's the guy's entire His whole, appearance yeah. in the book. But, yeah. Um, he does that throughout the book. He kind of like gives us these characters none of which are particularly pleasant as you might think of them, but all are like very rich and short. I mean, this book is 130 pages and there, every story has like a full page break before and after. Like there's yeah. not a lot in this book. Is, yeah. Like, not that much out of it. Like if this was a regular book, it would be like a pamphlet, yep. you know, like it's very short. And I do really like that. Like the economy of language mm-hmm. and the economy of, talking about things like real it's like he wrote he probably wrote like a billion words and just edited it all out and you do get that sense that like every word is it's almost like poetry in that sense like that every word is deliberate and you could imagine that like every there's a choice which makes sense why you keep returning to it because there's more and more there each time Mm -hmm. um a few weeks ago we did beloved on the show Mm -hmm. and i had the same kind of thing where i was like i liked it but i didn't quite get it and my guest had also read it and she was like we were uncovering things together and she was Mm -hmm. telling me things that she had got in her fifth or sixth read through and i was like right that's why um, these kind of books are yeah. classics because you can revisit yeah. and you can find like yeah, what, of- yeah, like the first read is almost like throw away, <laughs> you know, so you have to just dive in and then you revisit it in a year and you're like, oh, wow, sure. That's what he was saying. I get it now. Like, so I, I liked that. Maybe because his lead character is so, well, it's kind of a mess too. Mm-hmm. It always is, is like unassuming about the world, but, um, but just like knocking over little nuggets of just, uh, Wisdom all the time. Okay, I'm going to, like, read the other paragraph okay. I want to do. Like, uh, this combines, I think, some of the most vivid description and, um, and insights or just whatever. Uh, so this is from the book, the first story called Car Crash While Hitchhiking, mm. which... Great title. I, I know. Like, I, great title. I, like, I just, all the titles I, are great. I know. I cannot even, like... And if that doesn't sound like a great title to you, then probably... Jump ahead to the next episode because this book probably isn't for you. Yeah, like, yeah. This is just like not your cup of tea. Um, <laughs> but if you think like, oh, I want to read that car crash while hitchhiking. And it is. And of course, it's about that. Um, so this is after the crash. And then they're at the hospital. Down the hall came the wife. She was glorious, burning. She didn't know yet that her husband was dead. We knew. That's what gave her such power over us. The doctor took her, took her into a room with a desk at the end of the hall. And from under the closed door... A slab of brilliance radiated, radiated, as if by some stupendous process, diamonds were being incinerated in there. What a pair of lungs. Mm -hmm. She shrieked as I imagined an eagle would shriek. It felt wonderful to be be alive to hear it. 
I've gone looking for that feeling everywhere. That's also one of my favorite paragraphs ever. That's written. so good. Yeah. And I, so I'll, I'll tell you why. So let's deconstruct some of the reasons. That okay. why, so like you said, poetry, so much is packed in there. First of all, the slab of light under a door. Like mm-hmm. we've all seen that, right? right. You can picture some hallway from right, some movie right, light. Right. There's a door and there's a slab of light. So who would even describe the slab of light? Right. But if you were going to, um, a slab of brilliance radiated as if by some stupendous process, diamonds were being incinerated in there. So, like, I mean, that's just this amazing, glorious thing, um, which maybe begs the question, like, well, is he over-describing it? He's describing what he's doing. This is the sleight of hand. This is what the writer's magic, like, he's describing the mood. Mm. He's conveying the mood. He, he wants to, um, that's the deflection. That's like, like, he's pretending to describe a slab under the door mm-hmm. as a way to make you feel the shudder of glory of feeling like not just like the beauty of diamonds, mm-hmm. but taking that one step further. Like, you know, if somebody could describe a diamond, how beautiful it is. Like, well, imagine what it'd be if somebody crushed them and right. like the glow that it radiated. Um, right. He's putting you in that frame of mind where you're, you're picturing the most beautiful thing in the world you could imagine at the moment that a woman is finding out her husband died. Mm. And then the next line after this line that's like, you know, three and a half lines long, that is so many big words that I stumbled three times. I didn't mm-hmm. do that on purpose, but couldn't get the word. It's difficult to read. Right. Uh, the very next line is, what a pair of lungs hmm. with an ex- exclamation point. So he hasn't even told you that she screams. Right. He didn't describe the scream. Right. Instead, he described the brilliance under the door. And you're while you're reveling in the unimaginable beauty he just right right with the fact that this woman just found out um and it's all sort of mm-hmm. off character just got told her husband's dead and um and she's just wanting um so he's he's intercutting these things at the same time yeah and the diamonds is just put you in a mood and make you feel glorious and then get hit by it and then, and here's the thing, like, um, I was in a book club where people really hated that paragraph and, and cited as a moment where um, the narrator is mean or an asshole, hmm. um, that he was unsympathetic to the woman, that like, oh, she's um, screaming. I didn't read it that way at all. He already knew she was dead. I mean, the husband was dead. Like, he already, I mean, he told us. Right. And we knew, and he knew that she was going to find out, and this was going to be horrible, he knew something horrible was going to happen, and he, you know, he that they were just waiting, like oh, right. getting the bad news there. Um, and then at that moment, he just hears something really beautiful, like a eagle. Right. It's like he finds a different kind of beauty, and he goes right from the beauty of the diamonds. And maybe that's why the setup. Why I don't know if we normally would have bought the line if somebody said like, "Oh, she found out um, her husband was dead, and she shrieked like an eagle, and it was really beautiful." Right, I no. Would have, how, I would have ever bought that. Right. But because it's right on the heels of the diamond incineration. Mm. You're already in that beautiful mode. And I think the beauty of the one in your mind fuses in and it allows the next one to work. I go right there because I was already reveling the beauty. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, the beauty of the. And then I also, um, the next line too, I mean, it's one thing after another. Um, I felt wonderful to be alive to hear it. I've gone looking for that feeling everywhere. So here's a guy who was like literally a drifter. Right. I mean, he's like a hitchhiker. He's a hitchhiker. He's always, you know, got right. in the story. 
Um, and clearly, nowhere to go, nothing going on. A right, mess. right, He's right. An addict, blah, blah, blah. This is such a moment of realization of like in this moment. And then like, you know, the hitchhiking goes horribly arrived. There's a terrible car crash. People are dead. Um, the baby lives. But in that moment, he finds a moment of beauty. And it's like, that's why life matters. Mm. There's beauty in the world. And it's that moment. And like, not only does he appreciate the beauty, he goes looking for it everywhere. And spent the rest of his life looking for that in the world. And it's real life. In the sense that like in those moments when you know something terrible has happened or is going to happen or you're about to watch someone's whole world, you might not be thinking what you think as a reader reading it. Exactly. Like in that moment, he probably was like, oh, my God, she's going to go and find out. And like he's becomes fascinated with this light because that's the thing that's an es- escape for him exactly. in that Some moment. Some detail he's obsessing over. Right. Yeah. And then it brings him back with her scream, you know, mm-hmm. and and I think also like maybe I'm reaching and maybe this is just like after hearing you talk about it, I'm like, maybe, but that thing that he's chasing, this is the first story. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. we start to go into his life and his drugs and his this and that. And you often hear people who are addicts talk about like they're chasing this Mm -hmm. high. And so like, maybe it's that, that beauty of that pure scream and the light and all that, that in some way is connected. Yeah. I mean, they call it chasing the dragon. Right. And I, you know, maybe it appeals to me too as a writer. I mean, I hate, you know, the fact that Madonna would call herself an artist always made it hard to call myself an artist. <laughs> you know, an artistic producer. I mean, sure. in pursuit of like, um, so maybe everybody doesn't feel this, but I felt like my whole life I'm chasing different things. Sure. Like I'm, we're all chasing things. And like, um, that's another point of like that I really get this guy and like that it, I've never been chasing like the sound of an eagle shrieking. Mm-hmm. But with my writing, I'm, Chasing different feelings that other writers have done for me. I read Nabokov. I'm like, wow, I, I want to do that. And like, I can totally get it. Where um, part of what we're doing um, is chasing beauty. There's, uh, I, I've been chasing different forms of beauty with my writing and, and, and reading and like all art um, and, and trying to do it in different ways. And it, it just pinged something in me, me of like, I would never, um, you know, be chasing that one, but I love that they could hear in a cry or any kind. I, I love that someone could take any kind of thing in life, mm-hmm. in ordinary life, and see, although it's a heightened moment in life, right. obviously, and see a certain beauty in that and realize, ah, that's, that's somehow crystallized. Mm-hmm. A thing that I didn't know before, that I always, always sort of like searching for, but I didn't know it was. You know, I had a prop in uh, writing school who said, um, until you can name a thing, can't really get there or fig- figure it out. Right. And I was like, oh, I never realized that. And he was talking about the power of writing. And like, you can write about the thing, but as the writer, then you can choose whether to say it or not. But like, you have to figure it out what it, figure it out means naming it. Mm-hmm. So you haven't completely figured it out yet until you can put a name to it. And um, and I, I guess that's sort of what a sense of getting, here, I picture a guy who's like sort of was already for searching something, but didn't know what it was. Mm. But at that, it was a moment of clarity. Right. It was like, well, that's the thing. Right. And it's in relationship to death, mm-hmm. which I right, think right. often becomes really clarifying for people. Like in those moments when you're surrounded by or near to or looking down the throat of death, that it's like, oh, right. that's the thing. Right. That was always the thing. I just couldn't figure it out, you know? Right. Um, it's something powerful happening in your life. I remember... When I was in high school. So I was like a nerdy uh, and gay not knowing a teenager. So like, you know, so I wasn't like dating ever. Um, (laughs) 
Oh, I my first date like a few weeks before prom, and then I went uh, to prom what, with a different girl. So I was still trying. Uh, who turned out to be a lesbian too? Like we found perfect. I know. Um, but anyway, uh, but I remember before I'd ever really dated. So I was like a senior in high school. Um, when friends of mine would, you know, guys would complain about their girlfriends or their mm-hmm. relationship and stuff. I remember thinking like so envious, like. I want to have that problem. Mm. I like, you know, like to, to, you know, to have that, like, oh yeah, I, I get like why that is a thing. And like, you don't know what to do. And like, oh, it's frustrating. Blah, blah, blah. But I can't wait to like, you know, have those kinds of fucking problems. Right. Problems is like, um, and I, I get a little bit of that too. It's like, here's like a, here's a guy who's a drifter. He doesn't like, um, find this a life or death thing. Like, I guess he like, he realizes he wants to be back in the, in the game again. Or like, that's what I'm feeling. Or uh, that's just what it sort of called out to me. Like, this is a moment of life and death. Like she has a marriage, right? Maybe that's the thing too. Is like um, the cry conveyed how much she loved him, right? And how desperate she, how tragic it was to lose her husband. Told you how vital he was. Meanwhile, the narrator, right, like, he's out of that game, he's on his own, and he realizes, wow, yeah. I, I, I think it's sort of like a real. I mean that. Echoes of all those things of like of being in the game. I, I feel like he's just sort of like, I think what you were saying, sort of like just in a fog mm-hmm. and like out of it. And it's like, I mean, he's literally, and right after this, when we go back right. to like a detox in a moment. Right. Um, but yeah, it's like, yeah, I need, I need to be there where like shrieks for people, life and death things happen and the world matters. And like, I need to live my life again. Right. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, 
you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, I kind of want to shift a little bit because so last week we didn't really talk about Parkland at all, which is okay. We have this week, so we're kind of going to combine it because there are some similarities though the stories are obviously totally different and Parkland is a longer narrative, et cetera, et cetera. But I am curious about how you see your job as author, yeah. journalist, truth teller in a way, because yeah. you're not, the thing that's interesting about what you do and how you do it is that you're not a pure journalist yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh-huh. you're also not, a, you're not, coming to it completely after the fact, like you're kind of part of it and you're helping us, your reader and the world, I guess, to dissect and understand what we're seeing on the news. So you're kind of like the character in this book, who's kind of both making things happen and also having things happen to him and reacting. So I kind of wonder how you fell into that, like how you decided to write that way when you could have easily been like, I'm a journalist and this is what I saw and who, what, where, when, why, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, yeah. I love that you brought that up and, I, and all those things you said. Um, I'll start at the midpoint of the story. Um, early on, I set about to do this kind of differently. And the new journalists from the 60s were all sort of, sort of my starting point. And um, well, and of course, I mean, it helped that, you know, Capote wrote In Cold Blood right. was one of them. But I was really more pictured like, you know, I read Tom Wolfe when I was okay. like, in uh, college, I guess, the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Mm-hmm. But then I liked the right stuff more. Okay. Um but that's which all journalists like more. I understand. I guess oh, is that right? jur- oh. journalists like love the right stuff. It's it's pretty. And I love amazing things. But like um, I knew from the first page, um, I mean, it's all about. Well, it's first about the test pilots and then the 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 astronauts, the Mercury ones. But um, he doesn't start there. Mm-hmm. The opening scene is the wives. Mm. And um because there's like some horrible stat, like one out of three of the test pilots died. Mm-hmm. And so like, which is terrible, but like, that means if you're a wife, like you got a one out of three or chance, like, you Being know, a widow. And these are, yeah. And these are mostly like they're in their twenties and right. so these are young women and with kids right. and like, um, <clears throat> yeah. So he opens with like, um, a plane has gone down. Everybody knows it. And the phone tree goes like crazy. And, um, everybody's waiting for like to get the call from your husband that he's okay. And then, Somebody, one of their friends, is going to get the two guys to come to her front door, and the doorbell ring, and the or and but he starts there. Mm-hmm. I was like, but that tells you a lot about the way in. But anyway, um, yeah, I'm off the subject. Um, <clears throat> so I read those people and knew, like, you know, I tell students that I just did a, a, a seminar at um, <clears throat> at Boston University on narrative, and I told the people there is like uh, these are narrative nonfiction writers, and of all different times, you know. Some journal consider themselves journalists, some right. book, various whatever different ways. And I said, like, you know, those people in the 60s decided uh, it's called the new journalism because uh, they thought journalism was too confining and the rules are too confining for what they wanted to do with long form journalism. Mm-hmm. So uh, they tossed those rules out and created their own. Hmm. 
And thank God, you know, I mean, we're living in a much more interesting literary world. You know, you write, read nonfiction, probably like almost everything probably that you like is because like building on what they did. Right, right. And they created this whole uh, thing for us. Um, You know, they got it started, but it's still kind of exciting because it's only like, you know, like one generation old now. It's Mm. still evolving. And, um, you know, the novel's like, you know, depending how you want to date it, 250 to 350, 400 years old. It's had a longer life. It, it's more at its right, mature state. Right. This is still going. So you still have the power to invent. And we're still figuring it out. So I told people, like, like you got to figure out what which rules you want to go by and what, what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and what really helped also along the way um, – God, I'm going to forget his freaking name. The guy who wrote um, What It Takes, I believe, is the name. <clears throat> He's a titan of the new journalist. Um, my editor, John Carp, got him to uh, read an early manuscript of Columbine. And he liked it. He loved it. He agreed to, to blurb it. But he wanted to talk to me about it, which John said never happens. But um, so I got a chance to talk to him about it when I was still doing final edits. And I kind of sheepishly admitted that, like, I don't know if I'm supposed to, like, like you know, can I ask you a question? And like, um, I had several, but one of them was, like, um, kind of breaking the rules of, like, some of the people in it, I've showed them um, their part because I want to, like, get it checked. Right. Like with Patrick Ireland, only selected people who had – so Patrick Ireland, by the way, um, I printed off all the parts on him. I don't know. It was like 30 pages or something. Mm. Um, pulled them all out in one thing, printed it, and did a lunch with him. And, and you can't have it. I can't send it to you. I don't right. want it out in the world. But if we sit down and you, and you read it in front of me, I'm like, <laughs> mark it up and tell me. No pressure. I know. <laughs> And he mm. marked up correct lots of little things and, you know, a couple of big things like um, – and a few things was like, oh, well, that's kind of true. But like you're kind of missing this mm-hmm. thing, like that I didn't know that he'd never told me. I'm like, oh, OK. Um, so it really helped. But it was like fantastic. Um, and the parts I was nervous about, he's like, oh, no, no, it's fine. That happened. Um, I did that. Um, hmm. And um, – but it really helped. And I did it with Kate Batten, the lead investigator. This took six hours. Mm. Um, she's got like an encyclopedic memory. That was like, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages. Everything about the killers that are sort of actions and what they did on April 20th, everything that happened there. I can't remember how I cut it off because I couldn't just, you know, the whole book. And it would have spent hours. But we met for lunch at noon and I think left at 6 o'clock. Um, wow. <clears throat> but she did the whole thing in front of me. And she found lots of little things and filled in th- certain things. And she's great, too. When she doesn't know, she knows she doesn't know. And several things she said, like, well, let me make a note of this and I'll check. And, like, three days later, there's, like, this mm-hmm. giant email with all these, like, you know, minor things. And uh, so that really helped make the book. And uh, and Fusillate, Agent Fusillate, I let read the, read the whole thing. Because mm. um, I – and also Dr. Frank Ockberg, who's um, a medical doctor but a great psychiatrist. Because um, I also wanted – Especially Dr. Ackerberg, all of them, the take on the whole picture. Um, yeah, I guess I don't know that I've ever told anyone that I let Fusilier read the whole thing. But um, but so I asked Richard, and I, I guess I hadn't showed it to him yet. I guess I was still weighing that. Um, and Richard Ben Kramer said, um, he's like, of course you can. Hmm. And like, and you should if you think it's right. And like, you know who to trust, right? Right. You work with these people for years. It's like on, on what it takes. All And that was about presidential candidates. Bush and um, Bob Dole, mm. the Democrat for both parties. Um and it was like six people, and he followed them all the way through the primaries and then the general election. And he was a big name by then, so right. they were cooperating. And like uh, he said, I let every one of them read every page on them. And I'm like, hmm. really? And he's like, the book is like, like right, right, something. Um, and I was like, really? He's like, yeah. And it's like, and it's a better book because of it. Like, first of all, they corrected; they found lots of things. And like, there were only like two or three times 
and I don't know if he ever told this public, maybe I'm spilling his shit, but um, he's like, there were only a handful of times uh, where they really disagreed with me on something, and I, you know, to loggerheads, but in every case, I learned a great deal of why they thought that, and sometimes like, okay, they convinced me they were right, or they gave me so much other stuff hmm. with like explaining like, here's why, you know, I think you, you missed, you know, you missed the boat on that, and told me this other stuff, and I still profited with much richer stuff. Right. And there was never any, you know, there's nothing in the book that like, oh, I had to take out. Um, he also, I mean, he sort of gave me permission, the wider thing of like, follow your goddamn instincts and mm. like, whatever the stupid rules of, if you think that rule makes sense, then do it, but you know, do your other thing. So going way back before that, um, I, I didn't do either of these books primarily as a journalist, particularly Parkland, but like journalism is is a profession. It's one of the professions I do. Right. And what I do some of the time and what I'm doing for magazines, I'm essentially a journalist and the books are journalist ish. And that's a part of it. Right. But I, I sort of combine it like uh, the bigger model I have really is cultural anthropologist. Okay. So when I was in college and undergrad, um, there's a few times that like I grew up Catholic and, you know, the nuns talked about hearing your calling. Okay. And of course, I'm a literalist. I take everything and I'm like, <laughs> And um, and I wanted to be like, you know, I wanted to be a priest when I was a little kid, the, the Pope. And like, um, but I was constantly badgering. I remember Sister Mary, my second grade teacher, asking her, I drove her nuts. Like, do you mean, I didn't know the word literal, but I was asking, like, do you mean it literally? Like, do you right, really hear right, something? Right. And she'd be like, you know, trying to explain it, get me frustrated. And I keep like pinning her down. Like, but my reason why I kept asking is because like, I hadn't heard anything. Like, I thought I wanted to be a priest. And it was upsetting to me because I was like, what? and they would compare it like the Archangel Gabriel coming mm. to Mary and like, um, and I was like, you know, and they would talk about they're getting visited by an angel. And I was like, wait, so I missed that step. That doesn't mean, does, basically I was like, who's like, calling me? I know I can't be a priest <laughs> if I didn't get the, like, I didn't get the map. It was basically right. I didn't get the map. Like I was supposed to get something. Right. And then like, and, and they're always, of course, the thing is like, you'll know. And you'll I'm like, know. No, but I don't know. Like, that's right. the problem. Like, right. what do you mean I'll know? Like, what did that look like? What did that sound like? I don't know. But anyway, but like, but I've always, so then later in life, and because I was, you know, such a little Catholic boy, uh, that was so etched to me, like, this idea of a calling, I guess I did know a few times in life when, it, to me, it was more like I heard my name. Hmm. And by my name, it mean, I mean my occupation. And it came to several times, um, all the different versions of the same thing, in which I guess got closer. So <clears throat> when I was, uh, a freshman in college, this might have gone out of vogue, uh, it has, I think, in cultural anthropology, but uh, the participant observer was one of the big models then. And this book by Napoleon Chagnon, I think, called Yanomamo, the Fierce People, which is about this Yanomamo tribe in uh, the Amazon, I guess, Venezuela and okay. Brazil today. But um, yeah, this whole idea is like, well, that's what I want to do. Mm. And, and in, I think it wasn't just that's what I want to do. It was more like, that's what I do. I've been doing that since I was a little kid, sort of like diving into groups. Like I've also, I've never really fit in groups or been part of a pack. Hmm. Um, one time when I was in a job interview, the guy said like, I feel like you're a butterfly. You flip from thing to thing and interested. Hmm. And like, you wouldn't be interested this long. And like, I couldn't really argue with him, but it was the first time I'd heard that about myself. But I guess I already knew. So like, I was like, oh, I'd seen it in something else called an experientialist. And I also, when I saw that word for the first time, I was like, oh, that's kind of what I am. I mean, I took drugs in high school, <laughs> partly, and in college more, uh, just to experience, to know what right. it was, to go to those places. Right. Um, and I've done so many things. I've lived in like 20 different cities. I've gone to Kuwait. I've gone, part of the reason I quit my job, go to the army, I was like, 
I want to know what that was like. And, right. and it seemed like the last person in the world to be that I could be an infant. I was this sort of like gay, awkward, gangly, 90 pound weakling, uh, <laughs> you know, college kid and like an intellectual um, and like writing these you know radical stuff in my college papers. Like, yeah, like infantry soldier, you know, grunt. Right. Literally seems like the opposite right. thing. And so like, mm. I want to do that. I want to, I want to be that, not just like interview. I didn't want to interview soldiers I wanted to enlist in the army and right. be one, actually be that guy and discover like, oh, so anyway, so like, um, yes, like, oh, participant observer. That's like, like, that's a job. Mm. And I, I sort of like, feel like I've gone everywhere since I'm looking for that job. And then um, Lori Anderson put it more perfectly. So she's this performance artist and amazing singer. Mm-hmm. She was married to Lou Reed, like the mm-hmm, last mm-hmm. 10 years of his life, I think. Um, She's an amazing observer of society and mm. of life and people in it and everything she does. Mm. And so in one of her spoken word things, she says something like, um, I got to find this quote because I quote her lately. Uh, um, she said, um, but my real job is spy. And she means kind of cultural spy. Again, it's like, that, that's what I do. I'm like spy. I'm like, mm. like uh, of our culture, I'm spying on the culture and then like translating it back to like, um, and that's another version of, of, you know, cultural anthropologist of what, I mean, they're, they're spies on the Yanomama or, right. you know, Jane Goodall or right. she's with apes. Or like, well, what are, what are you doing with apes? She's, she's spying on apes, right? right. Um, that's what I do. So, I mean, that's really, that's what I try to do. And right. then, I mean, that's the other half. And then the other part is the art of then like how I convey that. And um, actually something that really helped is like when a friend of mine wrote a blurb for me years ago when I was still struggling, he said, um, uh, Dave is a cultural translator. And he said, you know, whether it's going like a white guy going to an Arab country or a gay guy going to the army or, um, you know, going to a gay guy going to evangelical embedding and sort of evangelical world and sort of telling that story. Goes into these other worlds, feels what it's like there, and then comes back to tell, you know, you convey what it's like. Like, Oh, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I try to do. And I try to do these in these books. um, in Columbine in a more straightforward way, but in Parkland really just like basically embedding in um, right. with the Parkland kids and not being a participant, but I, I you know, right. I was, you know, being halfway between participant observer and a journalist right. um, in between really between a cultural, being more of a cultural anthropologist right. and just like, and sort of spy just like right. what, and I want to definitely capture, spy in this yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And capture not just like, in not just interview them or like ask them their opinions or like write down or describe like, but uh, again, like try to get it like what I did with the killers with Columbine, like try to get inside their heads. Right. And like, what is it like to be uh, David Hogg or, you know, especially you know, Emma Gonzalez or, you know, Jackie Korn, who's like the really sort of like master implementer right. behind the scenes. Right. And, and in that case, it's like the not famous person, but who's really making the trains run right. on tape right. um, and really making it happen. Like, um, meanwhile, this crushing grief that's coming down in you sometimes too, but what it's like to be those kids and it's sort of like put you on the bus across right. America with these kids and make you feel like you are there. Um, so yeah, my goal was not objectivity. I, I think objectivity is like, uh, it has a place in journalism and right. especially certain times, types of journals. If you're like, if you're doing a crime story, right. a trial, or like first reporting, yeah, yes, yes, exactly, or like a, fin- a lot of financial reporting, sure. or like um, you know politics, um, yeah, depending upon what you're doing. And I felt like here's like for a lot of what I do, and I'll, with the gay soldiers story, like I've known them for 19 years. 
I won't say what happens is like at least one wedding, which I've been to. Mm-hmm. I've been to the funeral of family members. Right. I've been to a retirement ceremony. I- I've hung out at their houses and just like for right. kids of like, um, I, you know, well, I wrote the salon piece by just embedding with their, their world right. for, for five months. Um, so now I've done it for almost 20 years. So um, I think objectivity can be your enemy. And it's like, like uh, you know, the, the whole thing is like distance that we learned in journalism school. You keep this distance like, like well, I don't want freaking distance. Hmm. I want to like narrow that distance all the way to, to, to their nose and then further inside their brain, inside their body. And I want to tell the story of what it's like to be them. Right. So, yeah, I'm not trying to tell those stories of like, you know, somebody objective and outside doing the whole thing is like, I want to put you on the bus. As if it were a memoir, one of them written, but with some objectivity too, because I am doing some of that that can right. reflect on them and does see it as an outsider who isn't caught up in it and isn't just one of them. And also in this case, isn't 17 years old, <laughs> right? you know, and also who's been like, you know, through this for 20 years since before they were born, right. seeing these school shootings. So bringing a lot of context to it, right? but also, but the parts that's with them is like, yeah, shrinking that distance like right. distance is my enemy right and getting right into them and um doing that for the reader yeah i mean i think for me like the connection that i sense between parkland more specifically and and jesus's son is that though this is fiction it feels like the narrator is kind of like embedded mm-hmm. in this world yeah. and that he isn't objective. Obviously he is really more of like an unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. I would say. Right. And like, yeah. he's definitely on drugs in some of the stories. I'm like, that's fine too. But like that his, his interpret, it's his interpretation of what is around him, mm-hmm. not so much necessarily what factually has happened. Exactly. Right. And I think that that's really similar to what you do, but I do that's wonder, um, one of the things that came up for me as a person of color reading this book mm. and like someone who is very passionate about reading the works of quote unquote marginalized people. So whether that's sexuality or ableist or race or whatever, is that this book doesn't really exist for like black people or Asian people or whatever, like that this author being like a white guy oh. has had the latitude to kind of just write this, these short stories that are like kind of about nothing, you know, and like kind of about unsavory people that he doesn't have to like apologize for. And oh, so I was black guy did it. People were like, yeah, fucking loser. Well, like, like, yeah. And they're drug addicts. Of course. Like yeah. this is a, this is a tale so of the bad. inner city. Like, you know? know, whereas this is like in Iowa and like, mm-hmm. so I just thought that was really, it was something that's interesting. And obviously because this book came out in 1990, I don't think people were really thinking about that. And like, there were so few, you know, authors of other groups that even were attempting to write their own stories, let alone the stories of just like general humans. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I found that to be something that I was super interested in, in this book is like, who did that? Who else has done this? Who isn't a white guy? Like even women, I mean, white women are given that latitude a little bit. Like we talked about Lucia Berlin. I was just thinking like she kind of is able to do that, but even still her books are about women and she's saying something really interesting about women and like working class women and that she's not talking about some, I don't know. It's still connected, you know? Well, you know, there's an interesting thing there. Well, also the fact that like, you know, she wasn't ever a hit in her lifetime. And it's mm-hmm. only the last couple of years mm-hmm. for, you know, who knows, lots of different reasons. But, uh, you know, maybe we weren't ready for a woman to do it. But there's also there were there were certain controversies. So um, 
so, you know, all, all the stories were published in her lifetime. Um, right. In magazines or different collections. But one of uh, um, Angel's Laundromat, she got in a fight with her publisher. I'm trying to remember if I can remember this exactly because I had this conversation with her like 20 years ago. But um, there were Native Americans and, um, and some of them were alcoholics. And her publisher was like, you can't have a Native American as an alcoholic. That's racist. Right. And she's like... But I know a lot of them. Like, have you ever been on a reservation? Right. Like, alcoholism is a huge problem right. on reservations, and everybody knows it. And he's like, yeah, but you can't do it as a white woman. And she's like, do whatever. Like, you know, like, right. I'm writing about all these things. I'm not, like, excluding the Native Americans. And, like, um, but, um, and I, you know, it did, I don't know if it got published there or something. I don't know. But uh, she did. But, uh, I mean, she did it anyway. But, um, oh, come to think of it, that was before uh, later Sherman Alexi, mm-hmm. who's really the breakout right. guy. Right, right. I forgot. I really love Harry and Tonto, Fist Fight in Heaven, is mm. amazing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he has the latitude to go there. And there's a right. lot of alcoholics, but you know, he can he can he can do it. And he does it in kind of a beautiful way. Um Right. But like the question is then who gets to tell the story, right? Yeah. And it's like, is it it's his story to yeah. tell, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, Although in hers, it's like the Native Americans isn't the isn't the main character. It's sure. still about herself. Sure. But yeah, but she's like, like, I don't, you know. I can only have like white women be the alcoholics. Well, I think stories. that authors, like, yeah. Anybody, you know, I populated with like Albuquerque has a lot of different kinds of people and like they're all going to these stories. Right. And like, you know, I think um, the authors should get to write whatever they want to write. And then it's up to the reader and the public to decide if it's a story that they care about or that mm-hmm. they think is real or valid. I mean, obviously you run into an issue if it's like, you know, someone's someone popular is putting this out in the world and people think that this is real because, you know, so I think you run into issues of having to be discerning readers, but yeah. I think that you should be able to write what you want and let us decide if it's any good. Yeah. <laughs> I think also in that case of Albuquerque, like you have to be careful of like what you wish for because of like, okay, you take all the native Americans and like all the Latinos out of, uh, uh out of Albuquerque. And right. then like you have white Albuquerque and then you come into the problem that people always made fun of Woody Allen. Like right. you have all these movies set in New York city. And there's, and there's no people of color. It. It's yeah, insane. Of color. It's all white people in New York city. <laughs> Well, you know, that's almost like what these fictional person that we just made up is asking, like, well, if you right. make Lucia take all the people out of color, out of, well, then she's got a white Albuquerque, which right. is ridiculous. Right. Like, like, I mean, also, so the other thing that's in this book a lot, we're not really talking about any of the specific stories, yeah. which because they all kind of they all kind of bleed together because maybe it's the same narrator. But one right. of the things we were touching on before we started recording was that you had a book club that oh, yeah. thought that it was like. Like it was like kind of like a mean book and like not great. And we were saying because of the depiction of all the people who are drug addicts. And I was saying that maybe, you know, it depends on when you read the book and the relationship that we have now to the opioid crisis versus, you know, when this book came out and even in the last like three or four years, our relationship to drugs and addiction has really changed as a culture. Yeah. And I bet that's some of it. You know, I was thinking more to, I was trying to remember exactly what the reaction the other big, the other big reaction was like, um, was people like trying to explain away addiction or like, and and say things like these things like like, well, so I was trying to figure out like what he's trying to escape from, and I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, well, I assume addicts are all taking drugs because they hate their life and they're trying to escape or something. Mm. Like, 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 I don't think all like I don't think right. all addicts. Yeah, I don't think all anything. Yeah, exactly. Absolutes. But they had all these weird preconceptions, and the, like, and the book should be like a morality tale of like getting off mm. or something. It was like, I found a lot of imposing of like trying to like hmm. what this book should be about. These people like, no, like trying to make meaning. Yeah, out of it, like, um, 
Yeah, and they were trying to find these things like like oh well here's where he was escaping or whatever. I'm like okay well maybe there's some escapism like like but I I felt like there was a lot of imposing hmm. of like their weird like um, reefer madness mm. stuff and like uh, and, and believed it at some level right like, like, like you know I almost feel like there's a world you know divided people who divide the world into um, drug drug addicts and non drug addicts hmm. and. Um, Maybe like more on a sliding scale. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I'm like, and especially like, I did a lot of drugs. And like, and right. I, you know, still have you know, right. now and then. Um, um, I've never done heroin, but I've done <laughs> most of the other ones. Um, <laughs> I've never been, but I didn't have an addictive personality, which helped. Right. Like, um, I, I've had a few friends who struggle with addiction, but I know a lot of people who you know go to parties and, you know, do a lot of like, you know, X and K and G and like, and, 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 God, they've all got different names now, but like, you know, Molly and, um, yeah. So I sort of like don't divide the world, but, uh, yeah. So but I'm he gets at that in the book. Like, yeah. yeah. If you're, oh, he does. Okay. Well, you I, know, it's been a while since I've heard it. No, no. I mean, he gets at this idea that like, it's all kind of the same. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter what you're doing mm-hmm. and how much of it you're doing. And like, there's the one story, um, out on bail where he's, He's like at the bar and the f- the friend, Joey Hotel or something, who Jack Hotel, who's like out. He's he's on trial for armed robbery for robbing some college kids who are dealing drugs. And then they like he realizes that he isn't out on bail, that he actually got off on the charge because the the lawyer was like, who's really the bad guy, the drug, the robber or the the drug addict who's robbing or the drug dealers or whatever. And then. They both do a bunch of drugs and both the narrator and Jack Hotel overdose and the narrator lives and Jack Hotel dies. And it's kind of like, we're all fucked. Like either you're the addict or the dealer, either you're getting robbed or you're robbing someone, either you're ODing and having someone near you who helps or you're dying. And like, it, there isn't a morality around that. It's like that the whole thing is fucked. Like the whole situation is fucked, whether you whether you get lucky or not, like whether you drink yourself to death or, you know, he talks about his mom is has been strangled by an extension cord by her husband, like that this book really gets at like there's darkness everywhere yeah. and like you're not getting out of it and it's part of it. And there is no judgment to be made on any of these people because like how can you say, you know, and, and there's the story about, um, I think, I think it's work maybe where the Georgie is like the, the orderly and the guy comes in with the knife in his eye that his wife has put in his eye. And he, they're like, they call in all the doctors and like, what's going to happen. How to get it and out. and, and then like- Georgie just like pulls it out. And it's kind of just like, you don't, you have no idea people like there's no rhyme or reason to any of this. Georgie just as well could have killed this guy and he didn't. And then they go off and they go do a bunch of drugs and like surprise everyone, you know, is high, you know? And I feel like, you know, the metaphors of this book are, uh, some of them are like really in your face like yeah. that, but yet really work. Like he pulls them off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's was like, um, yeah. Somebody walks into the emergency room, literally a knife sticking out of his eye. Right. Um, but yeah, like as you tell it to, like yeah, that's a freaking metaphor about like so many parts of our life and just yanking it out. But like, I mean, you can take that in so many different directions. Right. But um, yeah, I, I I love the way he looks works with big metaphors and small. As you were talking, that you know, I did totally agree with everything you were saying. And like, there's an amazing movie uh, called Hap Nelson mm, with uh, you know? Ryan Gosling. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't know if he, I think he might have gotten an Oscar nomination. He did. Yeah, it was the first movie like. Uh, 
before most people had ever heard of him. In fact, that year it was like, oh, there's four nominees in this guy you didn't ever hear of. Right. Because um, it was like right around the time of The Notebook. And so oh, you only yeah. knew him. Oh. I think I saw it because I had seen him in The Notebook. Oh. But if you weren't like a 16-year-old girl, right. you probably weren't like, oh, my God, Ryan Gosling's so I gay. Oh, right. I'd never <laughs> seen The Notebook. So I, yeah, I don't know how you turned me on to it. But I think some review or something. But um, yeah, and basically, and so like, yeah, and he's a high school teacher in a African-American school with like, and he's a mentor with girls. Like, wait, is he the basketball ball coach or something? Or I, no? can't I can't remember. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's a black yeah, school but, yeah, girls. But then he's like, yeah. And, and it, begin, it, begin, it opens basically, I thought it was like uh, To Serve With Love. Yeah. Um, from the 60s with Sidney right. Poitier. Um, except then it's like, oh, if like 15 minutes into the movie that Sidney Poitier, uh, we find he's literally in a bathroom stall, you know, getting high on right, crack right. and like passing out. Um, and then, you know, one of the little girls who looks up to him, like finds him. Um, but then, yeah, it's very much what you were talking about. So then like, um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but then there's a, a black guy who like, I guess is a relative of hers, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, um, and is a, like a drug dealer, but isn't he like, I um, can't even remember the I, movie, I so. honestly, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure he is, but like, and like, so they're both sort of like being a mentor to the girl. And right. She's, they are. And the girl's like, these are the two men in her life, right. the two people, responsible people in her life who are really sort of like pulling her through and mm-hmm. maybe getting her out of this. Mm-hmm. And when they meet each other, both have contempt for each other mm-hmm. and want her to stay away from him because the drug dealer is sort of like, he's a freaking user. He's no right. good. Right. And the teacher's like, he's a drug dealer. He's no good. And they're both objectively sort of right. of like, okay, well, a Neither of these things are great for children. Exactly, exactly. But they're both wrong because, like, they're both making the best of a bet. And, right. you know, and he also is a drug addict partly because he's trying to be the white guy working in this school and doing this right. for these girls. But maybe it's, it's sort of in over his head. Right. And it's, like, freaking killing him. And so this is his escape. Right. And so he's, like, a good guy kind of fucking up and trying to, like, um, yeah. And I yeah, and that's kind of what the movie is about. It's like, well, right. who is the um, – and it's like – it's easy to see them as like the bad guy, except like we can try him. Right. He's like really trying to, and he's doing the right thing and he is really helping her. Right. And, um, but yeah, I I like those things where it's sort of like, uh, yeah, I'd forgotten that. Like there's a lot of this. this Yeah. Well, and also with like half Nelson and a lot of movies that have that narrative of like white guy comes in to save community. It's like, there's a sense of entitlement. And also in this book, there's a sense of entitlement like that, and I, that's what I think I appreciated most about what Dennis Johnson did is he really captured that sense of like, I'm going to be fine. Like, who fucking cares? I got this. I run this show. Like, this is my life, whatever, that I think comes from like a confidence and and that is just like that is inherently young white men. Like yeah. that they have that sense of like the world is mine and like, you know. I don't think that he approaches that part where he does an OD and die and the other guy does mm-hmm. as like, I got lucky. I think he sees it as like, I did it right kind mm-hmm. of thing. And like that, that entitlement, like he talks about his girlfriend who dies, Michelle. And he's like, I was the only person who could ever really love her and like whoever, who she could ever really love. And that like, I, it just, there's so much of that in this yeah. book that I was like, that is so right on. That is so a 25 year old white guy who thinks he has it all figured out. And like, you know, the book ends and he's still pretty young and you know, probably a week later he ODs and dies, you know? Yeah. And like, <laughs> that's shitty. But also I think the, those were the things that I really like could latch onto in this book is like the characters and how 
vulnerable they were, even though they were presented so confident. I but, think you know, that's really interesting. I, I, you know, I guess there is like a, and just like, like you can be a drifter for a while, like they get car crash with hitchhiking. I'll do that for a while. Then I'll go back and I'll have my career or whatever. Mm-hmm. I guess with me too, like even, I don't know if this, like even dropping out of school to join the army. Um, I mean, my mom, by the way, cried and begged me. And was like, mm. like, my dad too, but especially my mom was like, don't drop out of school. We'll right. drop out. I'm going to go back. Right. Like, well, I'm going to go back. I'm not, not done right. with that yet. I'm like, I'm not that guy. But I get, um, I bet if I were an African-American or whatever, Latino family, uh, there would probably be much more pressure. And it's like less latitude, I guess, to take Right. Well, the implications of being a mm. black mm-hmm. high school dropout, dropout are totally different. Mm-hmm. Than, or co- this was college. but still, Right. Or but college, like, whatever. Yeah. But like that it's a different thing and that the opportunities are different. And mm-hmm. like, obviously you said last week, you know, your brother is a lawyer and your mm-hmm. sisters are pilots. And so mm-hmm. that there is some sense of like, it's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so I think that that's super interesting. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time. Okay. I do want to ask you... Um, before we, we talked a little bit about the movie, I want to, I always ask about the title and the cover and I know that this oh, is yeah, a later yeah. cover and I think you said you have an earlier yeah. edition, but, um, what do you think of the title? Jesus's son. I know it comes from the, what do they call that? Ep- epigraph or something? Yeah, I think so. I'm terrible with this word. Yeah, uh, me too. It's a lyric and it just says, uh, it's from Lou Reed's song heroin. And it says when I'm rushing on my run and I feel just like Jesus's son. So that's the epigraph. What did you think? What do you think of the title? The one thing I don't like about this book. I mean, the song is, have you ever heard the song, Mm -hmm. Heroin? I mean, it was a really controversial song, even at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's basically like describing the needle going, I mean, it's, it's about the wonder, the wonders, the wonders of heroin. heroin. Got it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, I just like how, how, how wonderful it feels, but I, I don't know. I have a trouble even making the connection. My biggest problem, and and maybe he just loved doing this is also sort of shooting yourself in the foot. Mm -hmm. Um, Like every time I recommend this book. I have to tell people, you know, like basically like it's not an evangelical book. You know, it's not yeah. like, a, like it's, I had to Google it. I was like, hold on a second. I, I, I know. <laughs> right. It's like I feel like an eye roll is like, oh, what? Like, are you trying to let right. I, I feel like like like, you know, um, a Jehovah's Witness at the door handing right. you a watchtower. Right. Right. You know, like or a Mormon's like, oh, I just want can you read a I know. As soon as I'm I suggesting agree. it, and yeah, I'm thinking or like cringing is like, and now I just almost don't even. Or I mean, it's just all right. It's not about what you think. Or, right. And I or I tell people like Jesus' son um, is from a Lou Reed song about heroin, right? You know, and then and you're I, like, oh, okay, 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 I'm willing to do like, this. Yeah, uh, yeah, but a, a title that has to come with an explanation that's like, um, right? You know, so maybe he did. I mean, sort of commercially, he's right, but right. also just um, I don't know. And even like maybe I just have a resistance. I've never. Some of my friends have like tried to explain like, yeah, that's brilliant the connection, but I don't. It's a it's a long way. Yeah. Um, um, Yeah. I but I okay. So one of the things I noticed I I, think is that every story has the word Jesus in it. But I think it's more as like people being like, oh Jesus, da 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 da. Like, but I think I I started paying attention a little bit late, and I noticed it in at least like three quarters of Mm -hmm. them. Um, But I didn't actually go back and reread the whole book. But I feel like there is. The word Jesus, though usually like as more of an expletive as opposed to religious in each of the stories. I agree. I don't love the title. I also don't love this cover. I hate this cover. I think this cover looks like um, a Broadway play from like 2002. (laughs) Like it's totally a Playbill cover. Yeah, I know. It could be Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. You know, okay, so I met um, Catherine Sockett. Is that her name? Who wrote The Help? Um, Yeah, okay. Our books came out almost the same time. And so we did a 
book festival in Nashville, like when her book was just starting to hit, it was on the bestseller list, but it wasn't a whole phenom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was still in hardback. It was just out like a month or so. Um, and she said, uh, so there are two book covers because the UK publisher, like most people, is a different publisher. Um, and they had, had two different, very different book covers. Mm-hmm. So um, the UK cover, I can't remember. I guess it must be like a, you know, black maid and a white right. woman or something. But And she said, you know, the American cover, I don't know what the paperback is, but the original cover is like, I believe it was like, it was sort of a drawing of two birds on Yes, a, on a line, clothesline or something. Yeah, yeah. Or a, or a Close, uh, phone wire line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Electrical yeah. line. Um, and she said like, yeah, in other words, absolutely nothing to do with the book. Right. And, um, and you know, she said this openly, like um, there were a lot of discussions, like they're really afraid of publishing this book and, it, and terrified hmm. of, of putting anything on the cover. So they sort of like punted and right. put like nothing to do with anything. That could be the cover of any, any book. book in yes. the world. There's nothing to do with it. And I, I kind of feel like that's what they did with this. Yes. It's just sort of like it's the title, thing. his name and some green and yellow yeah. splotches. It's yeah. Like, 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 yeah, we can't figure out what to put on this cover, so we're just, like, not putting anything. Yeah. Um, Which is all kind of a bummer. I know. I know. That, I mean, there's... I, yeah, I mean, I, I get you don't want to go real literal. Right, you don't have, sure like, a what, heroin needle. Yeah. But, like, I feel like there's a middle ground. I know. Or yeah. something, or be great. Yeah. I know, it's just Whereas your book's covers are, like, poof. Like, you... I remember when I saw the cover for Parkland, I text my friend who I had a book club with where we read Columbine and I was like, have you seen this cover? Like, it's just so, I mean, between the titles and the cover, you know what you're getting. There's no like, oh, I wonder what this Columbine was about. Well, you know, okay, so I can, um, I love my publisher, HarperCollins, they're sort of wonderful. And my editor was fantastic. But uh, they were a little slow. That was the third cover. Really? Third. For which one? For Parkland? Parkland. Okay. Parkland. Um, Actually, um, for Columbine, that's the first one they sent to me. But um, the Columbine cover has won like 30 design awards, book cover awards, and then just. It's like kind of a perfect award. book cover. It's, yeah. I mean, I didn't have anything to do with creating it. So I'm I know. Not bragging. Authors like, always say that, but I it's know, still perfect. Literally, yeah. It's won <laughs> zillions of awards from just like overall design. Mm. It's, it, it, it's a work of art. It's, I, yeah. I freaking won the lottery. Yeah. Um, but he's got a website, the guy who did it. Um, What's his name? Henry Sin Yi, I believe. Okay. But uh, so he's got a website and he's done oh, yeah. this with several of his covers. Um, but he does it with Parkland, um, excuse me, with Columbine, his process of figuring it out. And he shows you like 10 other photographs, mm. completely different. Like one is like the hallways, the Columbine, the lockers, right. and random things that he tried and his whole process of figuring it out, which is fascinating mm. in itself. Um, and uh, yes, the whole entry is just on that book, and how it went. So I, I recommend that too if you like the cover. But um, so then you know, so I knew I needed to sort of like brand myself, you know, and like do something similar. Um, so like I don't know, six or eight years ago on my website, I created a mock-up book cover for the Gay Soldiers book. Mm. I just took the same typeface. I took a found a picture. Actually, it's the one that we used with the salon thing, and used that photograph, doctored it, and then like made a mock-up of my gay soldiers, soldiers first thing, which you'll find on my website, um, in Microsoft Paint, like hmm. a piece of shit, you know, um, thing, and just did a crappy mock-up. Um, but, you know, I used the same fonts yeah, and yeah. the same, or close, I couldn't find the same font, but right. close, and in the same place. And um, it looked similar. It, I did that like several years ago. And so what we were doing, Harper was giving me these book covers that were kind of cool, but um, I can tell you what they were if you want. Um, sure. But not wonderful. And I kept thinking... 
why aren't they just doing like the Columbine cover? <laughs> like, don't they want to copy this? It's so good. <laughs> okay, tell me about the covers. Okay, so the first one was it just said I think it said Parkland, um, and it had a flag upside, American flag upside down. Okay, and I was like, no thanks. Yeah, no. First of all, I think it's just like a cheesy one-note joke. Right. And second of all, I like you know as a former infantry you know soldier yeah. like I, I don't I don't want to go there. I don't think that's appropriate. Um, and so they said, okay, they threw that away. Then they came back with one that I thought was pretty powerful, but um, it was just all red. They gave me a couple different colors, but uh, I liked the red one, um, sort of an ochre red. And then it just had like six names from top to bottom, Columbine, Sandy Hook, Pulse, right. you know, na- names of these, um, and um, Parkland, and then Santa Fe. And, um, oh, and then the one Parkland was like the reverse color. Okay. Um, and the t- and so there were sort of like top right. um, across the page. The top one was Columbine, and it was cut off. So the top half of it was cut off, and Santa Fe, which happened. So they were in chronological order. Got it. And Santa Fe at the bottom also cut off. So it told. I thought it told a nice story of this is mm-hmm. this ongoing thing. I thought that was very powerful. Um, so I agreed. We went with that. I made lots of tweaks, of course, but mm-hmm. um, and then sort of my name was like down the side, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> and I thought it was pretty powerful and told the story. But I just kept thinking like. Shouldn't we just be doing the you know, right. Columbine branding? So right. so what happened is, sorry for outing the Harbor people, which seriously, they've been fantastic. No, this but, is not hate. This is so, so we have a different um, UK publisher. They came to us with a completely different color. Basically, this cover that got you're it. seeing. Got it, okay. But instead of the bottom where it's got this photo, it was a, there was a photo of Emma Gonzalez mm. during her March for a Live speech, sort of clutching her, or right. speech, clutching her forward and, had tears streaming down her eyes. And I'm like, okay, two responses. That cover is amazing. Mm -hmm. Blockbuster. Number two, we can't appropriate Emma's image that way. You know, especially since at that time I was writing about the fact that she was trying to literally not be the face of this movement. Right. And I'm like, that's not fair to her. And um, then there was discussion with the U.S. of like whether they could and the U.K. people assured. Well, first of all, it was just the U.K. edition you know, so we told them, yeah, but we don't want that. And, you know, we started with, like, legally, we probably can't. And they checked into it and said, well, we checked in with our lawyers with UK law, law. We don't have to get it right. So we can't do it. Got it. <laughs> so my agent and I were like, OK, yeah, one of the heroes of this, like, we don't want to basically be a dick to her. And like, right, no. right. And like, OK, we'll respect that. So we'll take it up. And so then they came back with this. Um, so then Betsy, my agent, was like don't you think this is way better than the American one? Mm-hmm. I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, I got to tell um, Harper. She told my editor, uh, who's wonderful, who I think had a big part of the development process, that, you know, I think for um, American audiences, you know, the ours is probably uh, better. And um, she said, but let me talk to the publisher, um, Jonathan Burnham, who now runs all of HarperCollins. And uh, he looked at it and he said, oh, my God. Yes, that's fantastic. Mm. Well, let's show the, show the sales staff and they were like oh my god <laughs> i yes. love it and yeah so the matter it is like, a total okay, oh my god cover I, I i know so it was like okay thing but then i was i i never said to them but i said to betsy's like look at my website like i did that like five years nobody asked <laughs> now, me. I, I know with like <laughs> with paint like like basically the same thing with the gay soldiers like yeah take the same idea but then i love that they did certain things that i haven't thought about this like like um i really my favorite thing about the parkland cover is um they literally made this guy blue. Yeah. And with, with, with Columbine, it's just sort of this grayish. Right. Uh, it looks dismal and bleak because it, mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then like, you know, Parkland is like, you know, they made it literal. 
it's fine. I don't think anybody's like found it too literal, but like it literally feels more hopeful. Literally, a blue sky is like a happier yeah. version. It's it like is. the summer, a happier version of that cover. And I think that's appropriate. And I think that tells a story. I mean, looking at them side by side, yeah. it's like that's the sad, dismal of like morning right. and the start. And you know, that's um, right. That's hope. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just look at them side by side. Yeah, this is such a bleak. And even the school is. Because they, you know, it's earth tones. It's right. dingy. And then here, you know, you get the pop of color at the uh, right. the wreath and uh, yeah. Oh, God, I love those books. Okay, anything else we want to say about Jesus' son? Um, I feel like we covered. It. Oh, I go. Know, well, okay, maybe just one other thing uh, to get people uh, to read it. So, okay. Well, this well you made it this far. Yeah, <laughs> we're like an hour I, and a half in. True, I thought of that. <laughs> Well, if you're still on the fence about it. One of my favorite, well, maybe I shouldn't, wondering what, no, I guess I shouldn't. I'll just tell the start of the story. Like, okay. I should do spoilers. Like, uh, okay. there's a really touching story. I think it's an emergency um, okay. where the guy uh, runs over, uh, hits something, and oh, he gets that, up. Yeah, it, and it turns out it's, it's a bunny. Yeah. But they realize, oh, it's a pregnant bunny. Uh-huh. And there's all the little baby bunnies yes. in there. Um, yes. And they're still alive. Yes. And the, the mom's dead. But um, So he takes them and he puts them in his coat to keep them warm. Um and I won't. I won't tell you. No, you can spoil this. If you made it this far, they probably read it. Oh, and I'll tell really? them the spoilers. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Go if ahead. You don't, uh, yeah, and so then he does all these. You know, and then he goes on and like, yeah, he's freaking high or whatever at the time, and not really thinking. And then he does all these really beautiful magical moments, like you know, making snow angels in the snow and all. Right, that. right. And he, for, I, as a reader, I don't want you, but forgot all about the bunnies mm-hmm. and. Um, and you know, came back to the end, and then like instantly, the car is like, "What happened to those bunnies?" Like. Oh, and then he opens it, then he remembers, he looks at his coat, it's like, of course he crushed them. Right, <laughs> right. But, I mean, but I th- I think that's also kind of a wonderful metaphor of one of the things going in here, of like, uh, good people trying and doing really mostly good things and finding beauty for the world, and then, like, sometimes just, like, just right. totally crushing, you right. know, the... Right. Or that just like we can all only do the best we can do. And like sometimes your best just isn't good enough. (laughs) Like, and that's okay too. Life's hard. Well, I'm really curious too. Like what did you, did you like the book? I did. I liked parts of it. I liked the idea behind it. I just don't think I appreciated it as much as I would have if I was a writer. Mm -hmm. If that was the thing that I was into in reading, I just really like story a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I think like for me, it just doesn't speak to my taste as much, but it's good. And like talking about the stories and stuff. And I think he's working on really big things. And what I do like about the book is knowing that it was written over 20 years ago Mm -hmm. is that reading it now, I think that my understanding of the world and the where we are currently in this country and like how bleak it seems at times that this book really speaks to that moment. Like we're, we're talking about the opioid crisis mm-hmm. and we're talking about white privilege and we're talking about people who are disenfranchised and the health system and all these things are kind of popping up in this book. And he didn't write it with any yeah. of it, any of what we now interpret it as that's in mind. Yeah. And so I kind of liked that being like, wait, when was this written again? Like, Oh yeah, that's interesting. So, so I did like, I appreciated the book though. I don't know that I like really enjoyed it, Yeah, but it's yeah. just also like, I really like nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And so I oh, always, yeah. fiction for me always is like, okay, I got to read this. Whereas like, yeah, if I it's like, a, yeah. Yeah. So I, do you know what? It turns out almost everybody reads a lot of fiction. <laughs> Nobody told me that my whole life when I was doing, you know, book clubs, reading Columbine. <laughs> Nobody let me know. <laughs> I also, you might try the, the largesse of the seed maiden. Cause he just wrote that, you know, the last yeah. year or so before he died. 
I mean, I'll warn you, it's not as good. Um, okay, well, then I probably won't read yeah, that. But, uh, <laughs> but a few things are. But um, it gets stronger as it goes. The okay. last two or three in there. And also, yeah, I say not I mean, I say not as good as, like, one of my favorite books of all time. You right, know, sort of, like, of course. Like, well, Anna Karenina, like, don't read, well, War and Peace isn't as good. But, yeah, but the, I mean, I, I feel like with Dennis Johnson, no one else thinks about the world the same way. By the way, you know, I'm going to throw out one other word uh, that I, I can't believe I got this far without um, – Mentioning All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, yeah. And um, really, I don't want to, it definitely wasn't my inspiration for uh, the Gay Soldiers book, but it was my target, um, which I finally realized uh, that was definitely what I wanted to do is like, because I wanted to be a soldier. Well, I wanted to be a lot of things, but one is right. to sort of tell a soldier story is what it's like to be a soldier. And the best story I ever read on World War soldiering is uh, is All Quiet on the Western Front. Hmm. And my copy, I don't know who did it, uh, it says uh, on the cover something like the greatest war story of all time, hmm. which I think anybody would say it is a claim of like, you know, if you, right. anybody listed probably War and Peace, maybe the Red Badge of Courage, but, you know, there, it'd be one of the finalists. Right. Um, and so I reread it really slowly over the course of a year and just lovingly and uh, and finally realized like, I cannot write this book. And I was, <laughs> while I was trying to work on the book proposal, like, I cannot write this book while that o- passing over my head. Of, um, well, I might also get myself in trouble. You know, um, maybe you're seven or eight when I was struggling with Columbine. And um, my agent said, um, you know, I wonder, I wondered if like, uh, do you feel like this big, you know, doing a true crime book, uh, essentially, um, you know, do you feel like you're in Capote's shadow and like you're going to be compared to that? And like, you know, you want to be like, um, you know, in the same league as that or something. And I was like, oh, no, you totally don't get like how bad I am. I was like, no, my goal is totally to do better than that. Like, you know, that, you know, that's considered the, a lot of people consider the classic nonfiction book ever written. It's like, all I wanted to do was like a little better than that. I think you did. I like your book more I, than I, I'm I, sorry. I, did, I liked it. I, I didn't uh, love it. I uh, thing. I like that, but I and I, but you know, I, yeah, it'd be sort of like making a movie. It's like, well, I just want it to be a little better than Citizen Kane, you know, right. like, um, right. But that, that and that was freaking me out and freezing me, and then right. I just had to let go of it. Like, and then oh, I realized, okay. oh, I'm doing the same goddamn thing with the soldiers thing. Um, but one of the reasons that I know that, um, and here's why I say it's not just that I feel, but I know that that's a great book is, um, I think I read it in Walter Reed one uh, mm. when I was in the hospital recovering, um, and still was a, a soldier. I did a lot of. That's when I first really got into reading. Hmm. Uh, I, I had a lot of free time on my hands. Got it. I was in podcast <laughs> um, and living in Walter Reed, and um, and couldn't be a soldier anymore, and started distraught. But I did a lot of reading, and it's, I picked up a lot of the classics, and that was one of them. Did you ever read it? No, I have it though. But yeah, I was like, wow, if this guy can capture the stuff that's just like that I'm still feeling now in America in this modern world, like he really nailed it. Mm. You know? Yeah. And. Um, and what it's like to be. It's like, that's what I want to do. Um, I guess that's what I try to do with all my work is capture a world. You know, and coming back to Parkland, I mean, that's why I did, part of the way through, I suggested to um, to Gail, my editor, I was like, what if we did a subtitle? Which, by the way, I also stole from In Cold Blood. Um, mm. Do you know In Cold Blood has a subtitle? I didn't know that. Um, it's on the inside? Yeah. The, the And I believe the original version had it on the outside. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, now it's just on the inside. And if you look, it's something like... A true account of a m- multiple murder, and it's, a, it's like a long, long, like, unnecessary okay. kind of like not that artistic, right? Not like, um, but I was like, what if we do a subtitle and just have it on the inside? Um, a birth of a birth of a movement, because I 
feel like that's what it's about. And it helped me even just to have it for a while. I just right. had it myself. It's like that helped me like, what is this? And so I wanted to like capture this moment in time mm-hmm. and what it was like yeah, birthing this thing. But I guess that's what I've always tried to do with my books and always, I think, want to do. Whatever I'm writing about is like capture a moment, capture a something, you know, mm-hmm. a situation, mm-hmm. a, a whatever. But like, you know, capture it, snatch it out. Right this time and place and situation reality and imbue it on the page. So when you're reading it, you like, you feel like you are there and um, you've been transported and like you're living in it and it's, you know, you're part of it. Totally. All right. Well, we have to wrap up. We've gone really long again. <laughs> sorry, everybody. Well, we're not really sorry. We don't care. Um, Dave Cullen, author of Parkland and Columbine, both New York times bestselling books. Very important because not a lot of people can do that. Back to back, just saying. Um, and two of my favorite books. And yeah, so you, I'm going to link to everything we talked about today in the show notes, including Dave's website and how you can get his books. And just, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. This has been really wonderful. What a great way to talk, spend an afternoon talking about books and yes, writing. I know. So good. So I'm nerdy. So good. And thank you. Uh, not to, uh, you know, to kiss the reader's ass or listeners, but well, thanks for us also for, for hanging on this long, especially if you're listening to the second episode. <laughs> but, um, I'm just always really glad that there are people out there, you know, who love books and the writing process and, who, yeah. you know, care about this stuff. And, um, yeah, that makes me happy that people out there and care and like, I know, I mean, I know I do. Yeah, me too. That's why we, that's why this space exists. So yeah. thank you for what you do and thank you guys for listening and we will see you in the stacks. Okay, that's going to do it for us today on The Stacks. Thank you guys for listening and thank you to Dave Cullen again for joining us. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, make sure you're following us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the fun. Make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please, please, please rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the stacks. <laughs>